politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to foment another revolution just like it is 1776. This is our time. This is our moment here at CR Podcast. Your host, Daniel Hurwitz, today for January 25th, Thursday. And I must say, I am, for once, in a good mood. And you should be too. This is a teachable moment in history. Now, I'm not going to say that come tomorrow or the day after, this whole thing's not going to be reversed. And it might fall apart, which it probably will, knowing that we can't have nice things with this fake party and movement. But let's just savor the moment that for now, we finally have the buddings of a state potentially pushing back against both the tyranny from the federal executive and judiciary, setting the stage to end judicial supremacism, and also the premise of federal supremacy when they violate the Constitution. We have the buddings of other states working together to maybe make red states red again and form a compact together to fight against that. And we actually have a conservative media somewhat focused as their top issue aligning with what should be the top issue of the day. So this is really good. Obviously, we had yesterday uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott putting out his letter explaining the constitutional case for why Texas can defend against the invasion and put up their barriers and enforce the law against the invaders and signaling his intent to continue doing so despite the Supreme Court ruling. And we had, you know, a bunch of governors led by Ron DeSantis and others standing with Texas, but to varying degrees, you got to look at the nuances of their statement. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. And we have people focused on it. Yeah, we got to stop the invasion at all costs. Time to make the state stand up to it. Time to end judicial supremacism. If we could harness and capture this energy in a bottle, it will not matter what happens in the presidential election. And this really sets the stage for everything we've been talking about. It shows you that if we only focused our pressure on our own sphere of influence, that even in the worst case scenario, that we not only lose blue America, but even Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, which we shouldn't, and the map shrinks, but we still do have a large portion of this country that will strongly avoid electing Democrats. So so long as we actually had a movement to ensure that the Republicans within those states don't act like Democrats, We would have a different country. You would have numerous places to land in for refuge from civil and religious tyranny, the demographic tyranny from the invasion at the behest of the feds. But at the same time, I believe that the synergistic effect of all the states and a focused movement focusing on the right issue at the right time especially something this popular as stopping an invasion, it would actually have a deterrent effect on the feds and even blue America to to an extent. 
it shows you that it didn't have to be this way. And imagine if we had a national leader leading on this. So let's start off with Madison Federalist 46. Ron DeSantis just quoted me using Federalist 46. And to be fair, I've gotten many Federalist citations from him. By the way, it was when Obama announced his executive amnesty right off the bat. Uh, DeSantis tweeted out, he was he was a congressman at the time on the House uh, Judiciary Committee, and he said, right away he cited Federalist 69 that was perfect for that moment, contrasting, this is actually Hamilton, contrasting the powers of a king from an executive, the one, meaning the president, can confer no privileges whatsoever, the other, meaning a king, can make denizens of aliens. So obviously only a king could do that, not a president. So I got that from him, and I was writing my book, Stolen Sovereignty, at the time and put that in there. But anyway, Madison Federalist 46 explains the recipe for how to accomplish state interposition during this nightmare scenario that we're living in today, where you have a federal government that is at war with its people, the rule of law, the Constitution, upside down, everything is upside down. What do you do? He predicted that a federal encroachment would easily be mitigated by state action. Why? Because, quote, the means of opposition to it are powerful and at hand. And this is why Madison left at the anti-federalists who turned out to be right in what wound up happening, but it didn't have to have to happen that way because it didn't. In other words, Madison was right that, look, you know, we're falling apart. We're getting attacked externally. We need to form a stronger bond. He was right in that. The, the anti-federalists were right to be suspicious of encroachment of powers, but ultimately it's our fault. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be complacent, then no form of government could work. And he's definitely, Madison was right about that. But what's the winning formula? The feds come up with something ridiculous, something tyrannical. He said the disquietude of the people, meaning the people getting very agitated and upset and speaking out, their repugnance and perhaps refusal to cooperate cooperate with the officers of the union, meaning the feds, the frowns of the executive magistrate of the state, that's the governor, the embarrassments created by legislative devices, that's the state legislatures joining with the governor and the people in legislating against the feds, which would often be headed on such occasions, would oppose in any state difficulties not to be despised would form in a large state. So he's like, it's better if it starts in a large state. Think Texas, literally the time we're living in. Very serious impediments, meaning against the feds, and where the sentiments of several adjoining states happen to be in unison would present obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. In other words, what he was saying is, plugging in what he's saying to the times we live in, that is, if you actually had Republicans and the conservative movement acting in accordance with their rhetoric and their duplicitous campaign rhetoric, federal encroachers wouldn't get off the ground because if the people of a locality, along with their elected officials, work in unison, and especially 
together with many states to say, this will not pass. This will not happen. There's nothing the feds could do. This notion that they're going to come in there and invade, you know, with the FBI and the army, it's just not going to happen. We're not there yet. It so doesn't have to be this way. Obviously, there's areas of, you know, foreign policy there's not much states could do about, like Biden supporting Hamas and and doing nothing about the Houthis blocking shipping lanes. And now Biden wants to send F-16s to Turkey. I mean, look, there, there are some things that it's hard to fight against. But almost everything else could be blocked at the state level. So now we have the buddings of this. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not trying to preemptively talk down Greg Abbott or presuppose he's going to back down. We'll see. Right now, he's saying what he needs to say. But, you know, he has a history of being good on the saying part. But to be clear, everyone's dancing around, oh, my gosh. Finally, we've defied a court. So we ha- we're building the, the Federalist 46 building blocks for doing that. The people are all agitated. You get the governor. You get the Texas legislature. You get other governors backing him. But to be clear, that has not yet occurred. That has not yet occurred. In other words, what, what the Supreme Court did was the Supreme Court didn't say, Texas has to take down its barrier. That's not exactly what it said. It They reversed the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit said that the feds, Border Patrol, are not allowed to force their way into that area on Eagle Pass against the will of Texas and take down the razor wire. And the Supreme Court reversed that, meaning they can if they want to. So... Texas is saying, no, we're going to keep the border, you know, razor wire fence. We're going to build more. And he's signaling his intent to, to stand by that, which is good. But to be clear, the feds haven't yet challenged it. And that would be one of two things. Either they physically try to get in there or more likely, I don't think they would do that. More likely, they would then go to the court and say, we would like to cut it down. But Texas DPS, Texas National Guard are not allowing us to do that. Then they would issue an order. And then they would, then that's when you have to say no. And then they would issue a motion for contempt. And when you cross that barrier, then we would have made it, which, by the way, is nothing. We could totally crush them. And by the way, I do wonder, and I've said this for many years, if the states actually keep this up and they signal clearly that they're serious about it, if I were a betting man, I bet the Supreme Court would back down and wouldn't give the feds the ruling they want because they don't want to be exposed in front of the entire public, Federalist 78, that they indeed have neither force nor will, and they're an empty suit, and they're nothing but a scarecrow, and their whole thing would fall apart. I've said that for years. If you would actually seriously, if the other branches would actually say no, they would actually back down because they don't want to lose that power uh, long term for the future. But to be clear, we have not gotten to that moment yet. And I don't want to celebrate before we have the ball in the end zone, but it's it's going good so far. And that leads me to the other governors and the presidential candidate as well. But first, our sponsor today. Um, now is the time all of you are getting your, your W-2s, um, your tax returns, and you could start doing your taxes. I know I'm going to owe a lot of money this year because I... Uh, I, I take a bunch of 
exemptions. <laughs> so I don't like money coming out of my paycheck. And then, okay, I owe more money. Now what do I do with it? Well, one of the ways to defray the taxes is to put it in, in, in an IRA or 401k that's tax exempt for an IRA. I think you get about 6,500 per spouse. Where are you going to put that money? In a stock market IRA near near an all-time high? In, in BlackRock and Fidelity and Vanguard? Put it in something of value with Birch Gold. You text Daniel to 989898 today. They'll give you a free info kit on gold and silver, by the way, which is a good option now. And they will hold it in physical, in, a, in, a, in an account, in a, in a safe. They have a couple places. They have one in Nevada, Texas, I think Delaware as well. They have a couple of locations. They will hold it for you. Um, something that is of value. And you, you do get your tax deduction through that, just like you would if you put it in Vanguard. But this is a much better deal. Text Daniel to 989898 today. Claim your free info kit and call them because they have great um, economists, great economists that will speak to you, walk you through it. Uh, it's like speaking to like a Ron, Ron Paul Austrian economist. It's not some uh, Indian uh, call center or something. These are guys you'll really enjoy it. Again, text Daniel to 989898 today. So, as of this moment, we are, what is this, 11 a.m., roughly 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. This could change. So we have a number of governors who put out a statement in support of of Governor Abbott's uh, legal case that he made publicly in his, in his memo. And it's, it's DeSantis from Florida, Kemp from Georgia, um, the Virginia governor, Oklahoma governor, South Dakota, Montana, and Utah, I believe. I believe I got all of them. Now, not all of them are created equal, just like it's unclear how far Abbott himself is going to take it. DeSantis put out a statement saying, um, if the Constitution really made states powerless to defend themselves against an invasion, it wouldn't have been ratified in the first place, and Texas would have never joined the Union when it did. And then he put out a video. A lot of people are pinging me because he cited me you know, with Federalist 46, um, and he made it very clear that he's talking about, no, no, this is not just, oh, Texas has a right to defend themselves, but hey, you know, the Supreme Court can't step in and basically calling for interposition. And I, I, I'm reluctant to use that term because you're not even, and I certainly don't want to use the word nullification because the feds are the ones who are doing the nullification. They're, they're nullifying several sections. I mean, it's the compact clause of Article 1, but also Article 4, Section 4, the guarantee clause where the feds have to guarantee states of protection from invasion. So there's definitely that. Um, and then they're violating the INA. But the governor has made it very clear. Not all governors are created equal. A lot of them, so Christy Noem put out a word salad. I can't even figure out what she's saying. And then other ones are just supporting Governor Abbott on the policy. Like, yeah, you know, we're glad he's taking the initiative to secure the border. But... <laughs> The legal case that they need to hold their ground against the feds and the Supreme Court, that we will see. And again, that ultimately is the timeline I played out for you. Abbott himself has to continue, and then we'll see which governors are willing to stand and which ones are like, that's the law, the land, the Supreme Court has ruled. So 
to be clear, we are not there yet. Now, to just deviate a little bit, well, a couple things. First of all, imagine if we had a budget deadline expiring February 2nd. Oh, whoops, Mike Johnson, whom Donald Trump just praised for being very strong on the border, just gave away the farm for yet another month until March, and then he'll give it away for the rest of the fiscal year. But imagine if coinciding with this popular fight with the Fed suing Texas, we had a budget fight, and the the feds would run out of money. I said all along, the synergy of the House Republicans holding up the budget along with the states implementing ideas in concert with what House Republicans are demanding in terms of negotiations with the feds over budget funding over the border would be a bomb and we'd totally be able to defeat them. And in this case, you would say, for example, we will not pass any budget bill unless it defunds or prohibits the DOJ lawsuits against Texas's border security measures, and there's several of these lawsuits. But we can't have nice things, so we don't have that. But there's another point, you know, I want to get back, and we're going to have a special guest coming up from Missouri, the Missouri Freedom Caucus, um, who was just kicked off a committee. The theme today, how it doesn't have to be this way, how easy it is for red states to push back, but if only red states were actually red. Now, why aren't red states red? Why have we squandered the last eight years? Well, there's one man that is in part responsible for that. So this gets me, so I just want to deviate for a couple minutes before we get back to state issues, the presidential election. So there were several colleagues of mine that that the minute Abbott put out his statement, they were like, Ron DeSantis needs to put out something. Now, okay, well, that... I actually agree with their sentiment that, you know, we need to exactly, you know, fulfill Federalist 46. Now, the problem is that, you know, governors are often in meetings. They can't tweet every second. So, you know, you usually tweet that at a guy that you know is not so good on the issue. But the governor already put out a statement the day before essentially saying that that Texas needs to not back down. So he already did put out a statement two days prior and number two, he's already called for states working together to deport. He just doesn't have anyone working with him or any conservative media buttressing his statement. But yeah, DeSantis. So, you know, and a few hours later, he put out the statement, then he put out a video, fine. And then other governors followed. But something interesting happened. Who is by far, like by a measure of a million to one, the most impactful, consequential, influential, important voice on the right? It's not DeSantis. I mean, we're told that he was crushed like a bug, that there was one man that commands the entire respect. At the Trump, right? So it's interesting. And by the way, this happens all the time. They, they make demands of everyone else. It's like DeSantis, no matter what he does, it's never enough. He's got to do more. And I'm like, all right, that's great. <laughs> by the way, it, it would have been great had DeSantis been the nominee just for the fact that he could never do enough, which is kind of good. The right would never be complacent, always demanding that he do more, And which generally, I mean, you don't want to cannibalize your own guy, but generally that's a good sentiment, and I, I share that strategically. But then when it comes to the idol, it's ask not what the idol can do for you, but what you can do for the idol. No such demand. And as of 11 a.m., 
he still, he was tweeting about the Gene Carroll and Nikki Haley and just, uh, you know, crowd size. Now, it could be, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the day, the better elements within him get to him and get him to put out a statement. I'd be shocked, actually, if he didn't. But again, a statement's just a statement. As I noted before, the people on the right, they have the influence enough with Trump to maybe get him to name drop something, but not to actually implement in the way it matters at the time it matters. And again, this is emblematic of what's going to happen when he's president, that we're going to be sitting at a strategic moment in history where we need all hands on deck, full focus on implementation, and he's going to be focused on crowd size, his personal scandals, his personal vendettas. We don't freaking have time for this. But it's also very telling that they they dance around it. And you know, it's so funny. There's this new coolness of among my colleagues, that they want to show that they're very enlightened and edgy, that they're super cynical and 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 always questioning everyone and and uh, questioning the motives and being cynical. And this Republican sucks. When you know I was doing this for years, and now it's kind of the cool thing to do. And and conspiracies, and maybe this isn't true, and that's not true. And you know, every everyone's trying to be an Alex Jones, but it's no longer cool. I mean, it's no longer. Um, taboo to be an Alex Jones, that's actually the coolness on the right. So they think that they're being um, contrarian and you know very enlightened by being edgy and going against the grain. They're actually not. That is the new coolness of the right. Except there is one taboo. So it's the funniest thing. They'll be suspicious of everyone's motives, even when they're kind of fighting for us. But then when you have one man who's literally not, he, in fact, the only statement Trump made on the border is how good of a job Mike Johnson's doing on the border. Now, all my colleagues are rightfully bashing Mike Johnson. Now, a lot of them promoted him, but okay, fine. But then when Trump, see, like, let's say Ron DeSantis made it. Can you imagine today if Ron DeSantis came out with a statement and said, Mike Johnson's doing a terrific job? I mean, he would never hear the end of it. That would be the biggest news all day in right-leaning Twitter and media and whatever. Trump says it, won't say a word about Abbott for 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 the last, what it's been going on for, for three days. And there's nothing. Now, a couple of the better elements after we crushed them because they were demanding DeSantis do it, so then they're like, yeah, yeah, Trump needs to make a statement. It's kind of cute. But it is so pathetic. They, they think that they're so brave and enlightenment, contrarian and based and right wing and against them. No, you're not. You have a degree of PC, weenie, linguini spine, loser, fact servative censorship like nobody else. Did the left leaning media ever censor for Obama when Obama did right-wing things? He didn't. But if he would have, did you ever find the media, you know, not pressuring Obama to go to the left or covering for a Democrat that subverts their own ideology? No. They'll never... So that's the thing. Who, which is more pathetic? The left-leaning media censoring in pursuit of their, their objectives or the right-leaning media censoring to subvert their own objectives and cover for a man who has the most influence to do the right thing but does the wrong thing or is silent. Oh, no, no, I, I can't talk about the Trump. 
You are not enlightened. You're not based. This is not like a new right. This is the same old that I dealt with from the beginning of my career when nobody wanted to, they only want to talk about the Democrats. They didn't want to hit the GOP establishment. So now they just have the old establishment as a straw man. You know, McConnell is kind of, when it actually mattered, these people, by the way, were either against me or weren't born yet in politics. They're so young. And now that Trump is the new relevant establishment, they talk around him. So there's nothing new or enlightened about it. But anyway, just to get back to the main course today, it doesn't need to be this way. You see how easy it is if you had a unified voice. And, and by the way, there's some good news. But it shows you how much more we could be doing and how easily. Ohio Senate joined the House in overriding DeWine's veto. Again, DeWine is only governor today because of Donald Trump's endorsement. His veto on the, you know, allowing men and female sports as well as castration of minors. Um, we have Utah SB 57. I'm honestly shocked. It's one of these interposition bills saying that the state legislature could declare unconstitutional any federal um, law or regulation and have the effect of prohibiting its implementation by any state or local official. Senator Scott Sandel uh, was the lead sponsor, and it it passed the Senate. I'm floored. I think we only lost one Republican. So it was almost every Republican. Utah is usually a pretty bad rhino state. So we're making progress there. And you guys should check to make sure you have a similar bill in your state. There are a few of them. A few states have these bills. Tennessee, Missouri. Um, so this this is going down. This is going down. We actually are making a difference. We're making a difference. I want to read to you another example. This is from the Washington Post. This is about a month old, but it's very relevant. How the anti-vaccine movement is gaining power in state houses. They see, see, they see the play down the field that I'm trying to make. And if I only had more colleagues doing this, and electing better Republicans, we'd be able to do much more. But the, but but we're we're the hope is that this is not too little, too late. But we're starting a wave of lawmakers who oppose vaccine requirements are winning elections for state legislature amid a national drop in childhood vaccination rates and resurfacing of preventable deadly diseases. By the way, that is libel. The only evidence of resurfacing of deadly diseases is from the border, and that's open. There is no resurfacing of diphtheria, of measles and mumps. There really is not other than at the border. The victories come as part of a political backlash. Because, and, and, and by the way, because what has become clear is that a lot of people who have gotten measles recently in, in the United States and in Portugal, there was an outbreak, they all had the MMR. Peter McCullough had a good piece on this. Um, so... The reality is that its standard of living sanitation is the main, main factor. So when you let in a bunch of people, it's not so much that they haven't been vaccinated, which which most probably weren't, but it's that they're coming from a standard of living and areas because of the standard of living, it's still endemic. So then they bring it in. 
In Louisiana, 29 candidates endorsed by Stand for Health Freedom, great organization. Um, our um, Jill, who is our Louisiana director, is part of that, a national group that works to defeat mandatory vaccinations, won in a state's off-year election this fall. Um, we're doing, you know, Louisiana is another state where we have a decent governor. We got Landry. We used to have him on the show when he was attorney general. I knew him when he was in Congress. He has the, that's the best potential for us to get another DeSantis. We'll see, you know, so far so good. Um, they did vote to close the primaries there and they're voting on some other things. Fred Mills, the retiring Republican chairman of Louisiana Senate's Health and Welfare Committee, said he fears that once fringe anti-vaccine policies that endanger people's lives will have a greater chance of passing come January when newly elected lawmakers are sworn in. Again, this was a month old, but that's what's happening now. And they notice this. They talk about Iowa Republicans as well um, who are fighting, fighting this nonsense. So this is this is really nice. This is really really nice. They see it. They see the threat. They know it. They know that the Washington Post knows that if we only made the political representations of red states to reflect the majority of the citizenry, it would be unstoppable. The feds could not do anything about it. And in fact, I think it would have the opposite effect because we're right and our issues would become popular. It would put pressure on the feds and the blue states and certainly the swing states and start chipping away and moving back that wall, that blue wall or the purple wall, and maybe even adding other states. But even if we didn't succeed in that, we would have so many areas we can do this. But again, you know, you saw that comment they quoted from the outgoing health committee chairman in Louisiana. Almost every red state health committee chairman is literally indistinguishable from Fauci. Anti-vaccine forces have been gaining ground in Louisiana since the pandemic. In 2021, Louisiana state health officials grew alarmed when Kennedy called the coronavirus vaccine the deadliest vaccine ever made. State health officer Joseph Cantor condemned false Claims made as intentional spread of health disinformation. Now, again, that was the Democrat governor's health officer. I don't know who the current one is. Um, so they're they're worried. Last year, Landry sued the federal government, alleging collusion with the social media companies to suppress the views of anti-vaccine activists. By the way, Landry also gave an opinion as attorney general that uh, they have no right to block prescriptions for ivermectin. So, folks, this is really, really good news. This is amazing news. If we imagine if all my colleagues, rather than focusing on the razzle-dazzle and Trump's rear end would actually, A, hold Trump accountable and move him to the right, move him to the right, get him to run a better campaign, get him to be better on the issues, particularly medical freedom, particularly the COVID vaccines, but then also focus on these races. Like I said, as of today, we don't have a conservative option yet to run for the open governorship in North Dakota because we don't have a movement in place. It doesn't have to be this way. I want to make it very clear. It doesn't have to be this way. It's only this way because conservative organizations and media are subversive and distracted and suck. It doesn't have to be this way. Look how easy it is. 
Again, we will see what happens. We will see what happens, and we're going to cover this. And by the way, just one more comment before before we move to Missouri and what's going on there and our special guest. But I just want to note, I'm you know people are commenting. You know when I said, imagine if we had a president like this who focused on the Federalist Papers in college rather than sleeping around with girls like uh, DeSantis when he was at Yale. Too many people misread that comment. They're like, I don't want someone who talks about Federalist Papers. I want a doer. Um, Dude, the thing about DeSantis is not only does he know the Federalist Papers, but he does. It's Trump who does jack squat. Do you know, do you know that just, just recently, I can think of three things. The Florida Board of Education adopted rules banning public colleges from using taxpayer funding for DEI. They just wrote the rule. They also replaced a course called Principles of Sociology with a course in American history. He's changing the culture of the state. And also, this this deserves its own discussion in and of itself. He actually appointed not just Republican judges like Kavanaugh, but Clarence Thomas's to the Florida Supreme Court, which is now the most conservative Supreme Court in the country. So they just made a rule that um, they took away DEI from the Bar Association. The Bar Association. That's a big deal because the Bar Association is killing the legal profession. We can't get good lawyers. We've talked about the need for states to push back. Now, I personally, I don't like the state laws that give the state judiciaries control over the bar. I would rather the legislature really control that, but that is Florida law. But he appointed good judges that are now doing that. This is what implementation looks like. And again, DeSantis, I believe, and and he's now... I think you could see his attitude. He's going to have an even better second term. We need to take that to the next level. But imagine if we had multiple states doing that. So, folks, all of this interposition and the concept of state sovereignty, states doing the right thing, protecting its citizens against policies that really violate the Constitution, but also the social compact at a federal level, it's all predicated on actually having red states. Now, you might think, well, don't we have about 25 of them? Most of them with supermajority trifectas? Well, yeah, but the problem is, what do you do when the Republicans are Democrats? And because of this complacency we've been talking about for so many years, we're underperforming the map. And this is where I want to take you to a state like Missouri. Missouri is really one of the most trending red states in the country. It has really become redder over the last 10 to 20 years, increasingly. It's a state where the Republican for president has won, I believe, 110 of 114 counties the last two elections. Basically, everything except for the capital, uh, Kansas City, and then you know St. Louis County, St. Louis City. And they have easily more than two, you know, greater than two to one majorities in both houses. Yet, like so many of these red states, we can't even get basic Republican bills passed, much less, you know, real hardcore um, conservative bills and bills like state sovereignty bills, which there actually is one in the Missouri legislature to push back against unconstitutional bills. But if we don't change leadership and we don't change the orientation of what is going on there, then it's not going to to matter. So we're going around the map. We've done South Carolina. We've done Idaho. And today I want to focus on Missouri because it's a big story I didn't get a chance to cover this week, 
We have on the line here State Senator Denny Hoskins. And just first briefly about him, he's had a long career in the legislature. He was in the State House for eight years and then been in the Senate since 2017. He's a member, co-founder of the brand new Freedom Caucus there that is really making waves. He's also a candidate for Secretary of State, which is important. We need these guys to move on to statewide office, so check that out. He's at DL Hoskins on Twitter. So basically what happened was the Senate pro temp, who may as well be a Democrat, Caleb Rowden, kicked off four Freedom Caucus members from their committee chairmanships, including uh, Denny himself, who was thrown off a a chairmanship of of a committee overseeing uh, tax policy. So this is a big deal that we now are ripping that scab off and we're now having an open fight demonstrating that these guys are Democrats. And again, I believe the state Freedom Caucuses are really probably our most auspicious avenue to either creating an effective new party or finally flushing uh, the Republicans and making an effective second party. This is where it's at. This is actually good news in my mind. Um, But we have State Senator Denny Hoskins on the line. Hey, Denny, thanks so much for standing for the people, and thanks so much for joining us for the first time here at The Blaze. Yes, thanks for having me, Daniel. All right, so you listened to my diatribe there. Could you just give us a brief summation of what led up to this, you being removed from your chairmanship, uh, you know, know, who was thrown off, and and over what issue? Yeah, so... Unfortunately, we have too many rhinos in Republican leadership in the state of Missouri. And so I've served in the Missouri State Senate for seven years. I was a state representative for eight years before that. So I'm the most senior legislator in the Missouri State Senate. Uh, Myself, uh, Senator Eigel, Senator Koenig, and Senator Braddon have been fighting for conservative bills, conservative priorities straight out of the Missouri Republican Party platform, such as IP reform, um, personal property tax cuts, and reduced government spending. So we have, you know, our our Republican colleagues have said publicly that, hey, we agree that these are priorities, but let's not take these up first. Let's, uh, in fact, our majority floor leader of the Senate, uh, Cindy O'Loughlin, said, hey, we might take initiative petition reform up the last day of session. Well, if something is truly a priority, it should be brought up the first day of session and the first weeks of session, not, hey, we're going to wait until May 17th to bring up something that supposedly is a priority for our Senate leadership. And so we, uh, we've we been advocating to bring up these big red Republican priorities in the state of Missouri, initiative petition reform. Uh, we just think it needs to be a little bit harder to put something in the Missouri Constitution. Yeah. I mean, for heaven's sake, we've got bingo in the Missouri Constitution. So when and we this use is where we have rules, all these abortion referendums, that you're trying to head off. That's right. That's right. They just announced a pro-abortion initiative launched this past uh, Thursday, and they are trying to legalize uh, forms of abortion in the state, get enough signatures, and, and put that on the on the ballot. And currently, to get something in the Missouri Constitution, you only have to have 50 you know, plus 1%. And so we've been working on bills to make it a little bit harder, whether that's a, an increase in threshold by 55%, or a initial petition bill like I filed that would take a concurrent majority. So not only would it have to have 50.1% in the state of Missouri uh, overall, but five out of the eight congressional districts would also have to support a change to the Missouri Constitution um, by 50.1% as well. And so 
We've uh, we've been fighting for that. We've used rules within the, the Senate uh, rule book in order to you know try and get initiative petition reform uh, passed here in the state of Missouri, get it brought before the voters. And unfortunately, our president pro tem of the Senate, Caleb Rowden, has not even referred IP reforms, uh, IP reform bills, and, and said choice resolutions. Before you get to the actual his Rodin's uh, Rodin's decision earlier this week, um, I just want to piggyback off of what you just said with those bills. So these guys, when they go to the public or the campaign, they don't say we want to be liberal, we don't want conservative priorities, we we want to do the bidding of the special interests who oppose any of our fiscal and social policies. They instead say that they're the conservatives and you guys are the problem. So he said. Uh, about you guys, they're willing to kill important conservative priorities like IP reform, education reform, and banning China from owning our farmland simply so they can continue to receive a paycheck from taxpayers. Yeah, that's that's laughable. You know what? We've got a problem, and I've called you know um, Senator Caleb Rowden, uh, Rhino Rowden before. And, you know, we have too many campaign conservatives, and and like you just said, we have. Republicans that go off on the campaign trail and say, hey, I'm a conservative. I believe in lowering taxes, even though uh, folks like Caleb Rowden, uh, you know, passed a, a gas tax increase in the state of Missouri. We have folks like, uh, you know, say on the campaign trail, hey, I'm against uh, DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Yet when I offered an amendment last year to defund public schools that actually teach those uh, woke concepts, uh, Caleb Rowden voted against my amendment. And so, you know, we have, like I said, what I call campaign conservatives, those Republicans that campaign like conservatives on the campaign trail. But then unfortunately, when they get to Jefferson City, they govern uh, like liberal Democrats and are become part of the swamp. So because you guys were using dilatory tactics, you're using, um, you know, procedural motions to force the issue, which which is, has really been the hallmark of the South Carolina Freedom Caucus. And and what I applaud you guys, and I think this is important for people to hear, the National Freedom Caucus, what happens is they oppose what the speaker does, but then the, the speaker uses Democrats to outvote them, and then they just lose everything. So, you know, what it started in South Carolina, looks like you guys are doing, you're going directly, you're, you're, you're directly creating a war. And it needs to be made because, you know, when you have, when you're on the same side, the same team, you might have some disagreements like, look, we're fundamentally the same party. Let's work out our disagreements. Maybe we'll you know, be on a different side of some votes. You'll win some. I'll lose some. Fine. But that's not the case in most of these red state legislatures. The Republican leaders and a lot of their members, they're literally Democrats. And the more we continue going on obfuscating the divide, the longer it will take to actually rectify that in primaries and start changing things or at least bringing that pressure to, to bear from the public so that they – you know, um, support our initiative. So you've been uh, doing the same thing in Missouri, holding up their stuff to force these issues. So describe a little bit what uh, Senator Rowden did. So what uh, our, our president pro tem of the Senate did is because we were advocating to pass initiative petition reform, which is, is crucial to pass this year. Like you mentioned, uh, the pro abortion uh, initiative launch petition launch happened last week. He uh, kicked me off of my chairmanship from economic development tax policy. I'm the only certified public accountant in the Missouri um, Senate. And so obviously I, I have a keen sense of tax policy. He kicked me off that committee. I was chairman of that committee. And then 
I was also the longest uh, serving member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, where we actually decide on the on the budget. Um, they also kicked me off that committee as well. In addition to that, they took away my uh, parking spot. I, w- I wish I could say I was joking. They took away my parking spot. Parking and spot. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but they claim it wasn't punitive. Uh, so they took away my parking spot. And then um, there was discussions, I guess, as well, to take away my office furniture in my Senate office, all because I was I'm advocating for strong conservative bills that are, are found in the Missouri Republican Party platform. And they didn't like, uh, you know, some tweets that I'd sent out. They didn't like uh, me holding up uh, other um, bills, you know, that aren't priorities in order to try and get to initiative petition reform on on the Senate floor. And like I said, our president pro temps, uh, Rowden, has not even referred. It's our fourth week of session. We're just finishing up this week, has not referred one bill related to initiative petition reform uh, in the Missouri Senate. So um, I've been told that he has some big dark money uh, donors, out-of-state donors that do not want to see initiative petition reform passed. Uh, and they also want to see... Which issue do uh, they feel it harms? Well, uh, ranked choice voting. They'd like to have ranked choice voting passed. Wait, you got to be kidding I'm, me. you got to be kidding me. Wait, you're no. telling me that the Senate pro temp, present pro temp of the Senate in a state like Missouri, where under a normal constitutional voting system, Republicans will always dominate, they want to create a system that will give Dems an avenue to do what they did in Alaska to take a red state and turn it blue? Yes. <laughs> I know, I know it, it, it's laughable, <laughs> but th- this is... This is this is what happens. Yeah. You have Democrats that run as Republicans and win Republican seats, and then they get they get in the legislature and, and they uh, say, "Oh well, you know, I'm you know these aren't Democrat things; these are Republican things. These are conservative." And we've heard this before too in the Missouri Senate. These because I am a conservative, then anything that I say is also conservative, and. Or hey, this bill must be conservative because I am I am a conservative. When actually they're they're pages right out of the Pelosi you know Biden playbook. I mean we've got um, bills that are being um, filed by Republicans that you know come out of the Democrat Party re- platform, not the Republican Party platform, yep. and it's just uh, it's just sickening. And then and then what I found also is that then their ability, like you said, to block good legislation that's needed to interpose against tyranny. So what I found appalling in a state like Missouri is that you guys are on your fifth legislative session, four and a half, since COVID. And, you know, we we basically, you know, we're living our lives and all of a sudden martial law is declared. Every constitutional thing is thrown out. And, And look, you're not the only red state. Most of them had this problem. Where I was thinking, I I didn't understand. I said, wait a minute, what? How we have super majorities in these legislatures? How are they not getting on the field and saying and terminating the emergency powers, these mass mandates, vaccine mandates? I know Senator Moon, I, I know him and a couple others. They had uh you know a bunch of bills to deal with that. And correct me if I'm wrong. Four years later, it doesn't look like you fundamentally scratched the surface of that entire edifice of biomedical security attorney and emergency powers um, that was used to implement the lockdowns to 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 undo it. I, I agree. Yes, yeah, Senator Boone's a, a great conservative uh, senator and a, a good friend of mine. He has been uh, one of the leaders on you know fighting against medical tyranny and uh, the bills that he has 
proposed in the past. I, I've supported. I've filed some of those. I know he's filed uh, some bills uh, similar to mine. But yes, we we have a supermajority both in the Missouri House and the Missouri Senate. We also have every statewide elected official in the state of Missouri is a Republican. So we we are a very red state now. It did not used to be like that when I first came into sure. the legislature in 2009. We had a, a Democratic governor. We had other statewide officials. We I think out of 163 state reps, we only had 87 uh, Republicans. So it was a very a small majority. But that majority has grown. And you would think that we would be able to get more big red items and, and ticket things done. You know, when we look at other states, big red states like Texas, Florida, Tennessee, they have less of a supermajority in their House and Senate than we do, yet they are able to get more big red ticket things done than, than we are. And that's just that's just unfortunate. Again, it comes back to Democrats running as Republicans, uh, some of these candidates not being properly vetted, saying the right things on the campaign trail, being a campaign conservative, but then getting to Jefferson City and governing like Democrats. Yep. No, I mean, and, and this is what we have across the board. Again, you guys have something like a 24-10 majority in the Senate. and That's uh, correct. 111 to 51 in the House. So, so we're talking about more than two to one. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. You know, imagine having something like a, a 70-30 majority, Republican majority in the United States Senate. Wow, like, you know, you couldn't even fathom that. And and this is what we have everywhere. But if we just continue along and make pretend like we have those majorities when in fact we don't, when you actually have, unfortunately, in almost every red state, super majority liberal majorities, we're not going to do anything. And, and this is what is so sad. A lot of people think, well, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, you know, your, your, your leadership and the governors of these red states will always say, yeah, it's Biden, it's the Democrats. But as we see, it's so easy to push back against the feds. It's not that they don't have the power and ability to do it. It's that a lot of them tacitly agree, at least to some degree, with some of these policies. They're not really red. If we really had red states, we'd be able to push back. Um, you know, I'm just curious about you. You're kind of an odd duck in the scheme of things. Most Freedom Caucus guys I know are the relatively new guys. So it's interesting. You're a leader in the Freedom Caucus, and you've been in the legislature since 2008. Just describe that to us, how you've been able to be there this long but kind of be the Lone Ranger. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I I've basically – I. What I've told my constituents I would do, I've come up and, and done here in the Missouri State Capitol. So when I say I'm going to do something, I, I do it. I, I, I'm not a campaign conservative. I don't tell my constituents one thing and then come up and vote differently. I've been against tax cuts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm for more limited government. I'm for cutting government spending. And so in Missouri, we do have term limits. And so I was able to serve eight years in the House. And, and now I'm in my eighth and final year in the Missouri State Senate. But, uh, you know, just being true to my constituents and, and true to myself and, and not uh, deviating from um, telling or doing here in Jeff City what I had told my constituents I was going to do. And when you talk about those, you know, big red things and, and things like that. So we had our, our governor of the state of Missouri gave his state of the state yesterday, and he proposed the largest budget that we've had in Missouri state history, I believe $52.7 billion dollars. Now, five years ago, our Missouri state budget was $27 billion. So, yes. Yeah, so doubling the last, in five years. That's right. Doubling, doubling our budget in five years. And so 
I had called upon the governor to reduce government spending, to eliminate uh, some of these woke uh, DEIB positions that have infiltrated our, our government agencies and departments. And unfortunately, um, the state of the state yesterday, he proposed the largest spending package in Missouri state history of $52.7 billion, a, a huge increase over five years ago. And, and again, to be clear, this is not being spent on like creating a Missouri state guard to interpose against the feds or whatever. I mean, this is largely growing the departments of health and education. So it's not just fiscal, but it's also social policy because you're, you're just empowering all the NGOs and the types that are, you know, getting the meat hooks of, left-wing ideology into what should be a conservative state. Um, so so you're in your last um, term, uh, yes. you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the Senate. You know, you're from the heartland just south of, of, of the capital, the heartland of the state. But now you're looking to go statewide, which is, I think, what we need to do with some of our best Freedom Caucus guys, start moving them up to, you know, attorney general, governor. So you're running for secretary of state. Describe the importance of that position and what you hope to accomplish for Missouri. Yes, uh, I am running for Secretary of State in 2024. Obviously, our Republican primary in the state of Missouri is in August. But, I mean, what couldn't be more important than elections? You know, we've seen the millions of illegal immigrants coming up from our, our southern border and infiltrating all of the states. You know, we've got states like California that are trying to make it legal for uh, illegal immigrants to vote in, in local elections. Well, we know where that's going. They're going to try and have them vote in our federal and state elections. Fortunately, we've been able to do some good things here as far as, as, far as election integrity goes. Uh, we re do require voter ID. We ban Zuckerbucks. We ban the ballot drop boxes. And we've all seen those videos from Georgia or Connecticut where you have a car pull up, they pop the trunk, grab a duffel bag full of of ballots and, and stuff those in, in the ballot drop box. However, you know, there's some other things that we could do here to make uh, our elections more secure. I believe that we need to have security cameras at all those polling locations. I mean, that's the only reason we found out about Wanda in Connecticut. I, I don't trust the machines. I, I mean, I don't trust the machines. I think all of us have had a computer virus on our cell phone, on our iPad, on our yeah. computer. I mean, heck, even our software in our, our truck or car. And so I don't trust the machines. And, and so I've been a proponent of going back to hand counting ballots. Mm. Uh, we did that so in my own ballots. home paper ballots, uh, hand counting those. Uh, we've had a couple counties um, um, do that here in the state of Missouri. Osage County did a municipal election this past April with no, uh, no incidents. I'm um, actually my home, own home county, Johnson County, Missouri, in Warrensburg, Missouri, home of uh, University of Central Missouri and the B-2 Stealth Bomber. I mean, we, we had a special election in August, and actually they printed ballots and hand-counted those ballots for a sewer district election. So it's something that we that can be done. Yep. This is how things used to be done. And, you know, I don't trust the machines. Uh, I've just seen too many irregularities and abnormalities uh, coming out from other states. And, and so those are some of the things that I want to focus on uh, as far as being the next secretary of state in, in Missouri, make sure only citizens vote and make sure that our, our elections are free and fair and can't be manipulated. You know, now that you bring bring up elections and, and I don't know how much of this is a secretary of state purview might be a little bit more of a party position. But don't you think we need a more kind of caucus or convention style for primaries 
where we'd be able to get in a better crop of Republicans for governor, Congress, the legislature, that where the party grassroots would understand who the Democrats and, and you know sheep skin are versus people like you. Is that something you guys have explored or have interest in exploring in, in a state like Missouri? Yes, most certainly. I mean, what you're talking about is vetting. And most certainly, I, I am open to being vetted by any Republican Central Committee in the state of Missouri. Uh, I think my voting record uh, speaks, for, speaks for itself. You know, being a founding member of the Missouri Freedom Caucus, I was also a Missouri uh, Club, for, or Club for Growth Foundation fellow. And so, yes, I, I think that, you know, candidates should be vetted because, like I said, we have too many yep. uh, Republican campaign conservatives campaign on the trail that they're very conservative, but then come and, and vote like liberal Democrats when they come to Jefferson City. And, and I would just add to what you're saying. Part of the moral hazard that we have is that they have superior forces. So they have all the industry money precisely because they're going to do the industry biddings, but then they use it to run on our issues. So they have more money. So, you know, when you're talking about legislature and in Congress, especially down ballot, it, it's, it's, it's a game of name ID when it comes to primaries. Primaries are all about name ID. And buy name ID off of our issues with the money that's antithetical to those ideals. So the only way, in my view, to stop that is to stop this, you know, just unfettered popular primary stuff that just allows the elites to continue screwing up the party. Um, But that's definitely something that, you know, maybe maybe you could do something to secretary of state. I'd also love to do something about early voting, which has just gotten out of hand. It's just it's just ridiculous. Um. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that especially in primaries, to the extent a challenger ever gains traction against the establishment, it's at the very end. And so if you have a couple weeks of early voting, you know, by default, people don't think it's a race. You just kind of default vote for the incumbent. It's as ludicrous as it is in a general election to the degree we've made it. It's it's just unfathomable in a primary. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, So I don't know if that's something that you've you've looked at. Yes. Yeah. I, I've always said that I, I think the most secure elections and elections that I support are in person on election day with a paper ballot. Uh, those are the most secure elections that we can have. I mean, obviously we have um, poll watchers and, and things like that, but yeah, in person on election day with a paper ballot is the most secure election that we can have. And, you know, like I said before, I, I do support uh, vetting. I, we have, we need to do something. We have way too many Democrats running as Republicans now and saying that they're saying they're Republicans. And so uh, there are some changes that we need to have in the state of Missouri. We need close primaries. We've seen, you know, in mm-hmm. states like um, New Hampshire, where they don't have uh, close primaries and you had Democrats uh, coming up and changing their registration to Republicans just so they could, they could vote in the Republican presidential primary. And that, that just can't happen. That's, that's not what we need. No, exactly. Make red states red again, and uh, that's right. The world, the world will change. It will. It, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, we need to ask, where is our Massachusetts? Where is our California? I mean, we're starting to get there with Florida, but we need more states. And Missouri has certainly been an underperforming state. But boy, that that Freedom Caucus has really changed things. I'm assuming you don't want to publicly telegraph your next punch and your next move, but I'm assuming that move will not be backing down and begging for your position back. No, no, most certainly. Well, in fact, we are actually in, in session now and having some debate on the Senate floor. Uh, still trying to get initiative petition reform uh, to 
to the uh, on the floor so we can debate it. If it truly is a, a priority, we need to take it up and and pass it now. But no, we're going to continue to fight uh, for you know Republican Missouri Party uh, platform principles and and ideas. Uh, you know tax cuts, uh, reduce government spending, initiative petition reform. You know we're one of the only states, and uh, obviously with the Save Girls Sports Act and the Safe Act, uh, the Safe Act, uh, which was my bill that we that we passed this past year, uh, but uh, to eliminate transgender surgeries and and um, hormone treatments and puberty blockers. But our leadership negotiated with the Democrats and put a four year sunset on our Save Girls Sports Act as well as our Safe mm-hmm. Act. So we're like th- yes, that's the we sort actually, of thing you do when you have a fifty fifty chamber. You know, and Democrats have fifty percent. You kind of have to compromise, but. That's ridiculous. That's unbelievable. Well, anyway, we're out of time. This has been very enlightening. So you're again at DL Hoskins on Twitter. Do you have a website where people could go and and help you out? Yes, most certainly. Uh, DennyHoskins.com. Again, this D-E-N-N-Y-H-O-S-K-I-N-S.com. And then, like you said, at at Twitter, at uh, X, at DL Hoskins. Well, that's that's where we are, folks. If you have any questions for for Senator Hoskins, uh, let me know. Daniel Horowitz at StartMail.com. We're out of time. Thank you, Senator, for joining us. And thank you all. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.